Welcome to episode 8 of the Fire Safety Matters podcast where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK's dedicated fire industry. My name's Brian Sims and I'm the editor of Fire Safety Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the Fire Safety Event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 27th and 28th of April 2021. To register for the show, visit www.firesafetyevent.com. As always, I'm joined on the Fire Safety Matters podcast by Mark Sennett, the CEO at Western Business Media. How are you, Mark? I'm great, Brian. How are you, my friend? I'm very well, thank you, Mark. Well, we've got quite a bit of news to cover this week, as always, and it seems every time we do this, Brian, we get just more big news coming out of the fire sector at the moment. There's certainly been an abundance of it over quarter two in the summer so far. And another big one that you wrote about recently is where I want to start off on. So the government has published its landmark building safety bill, which is designed to deliver the biggest changes to building safety for nearly 40 years. And ultimately, it aims to make residents safer in their homes. The building safety bill has been published in draft form and will improve regulations as the government seeks to bring forward a clearer system with residents' safety very much at the heart of the matter. Residents have actually helped to develop the proposals through engagement groups and under the new rules, people living in high-rise buildings will be empowered to challenge inaction from their building owner and have better access to safety information about their buildings. They'll also benefit from a swift and effective complaints process. So that's all great news so far there, Brian. A building safety regulator operating within the health and safety executive will also be established and equipped with the power to hold building owners to account. I mean, that, that's quite pivotal, actually, Brian, because the health and safety executive, as many will know, are very, very proactive in enforcement and guidance, and they're the main regulator on the health and safety side. So on the back of the Hackett review, which has kicked all of this off for the government, it's interesting that they have followed through with her recommendation. It's gone to her old, her old gaff, the health and safety executive, that will having the building safety regulator operating within it. So the bill itself will enforce a new and more stringent set of rules applicable to buildings of 18 metres or more, or taller than six storeys, encompassing each stage from the initial design phase through to occupation. The building safety regulator will have three main functions. To oversee the safety and standard of all buildings, directly assure the safety of higher risk buildings, and improve the competency of people responsible for managing and overseeing building works. The government's views on the draft bill as legislation will evolve as further evidence and risks are identified to ensure that resident safety is always prioritised and will also provide new powers to better regulate construction materials and products to ensure that they're safe for use. So this is interesting, Brian. I'm sure you'll have more to chip in on this in a moment. But at a time when, obviously, the fire safety bill's coming in, which is all intrinsically linked to the fire safety order, we're finally starting to see some quite monumental changes happening to fire safety legislation in this country. As I said at the start, it's been nearly 40 years since this has been looked at. And this is the knock-on effect from Grenfell. You know, Conservative governments in the past have been accused of really not being interested in letting the industry do anything other than self-regulate. You certainly can't accuse this government of not taking the Grenfell tragedy seriously because there's a lot of work in the offing of changing legislation. Really interesting time, Brian. Don't know what your thoughts are. It is indeed, Mark. An important point to note here is that the government is also publishing a consultation which sets out proposals to implement the recommendations from phase one of the Grenfell Tower inquiry that require a change in law. The consultation will also look at strengthening fire safety in all regulated buildings in England to ensure that people are safe from fire regardless of where they live, stay or work. Taken together with the draft bill, these measures will improve the safety of residents in buildings of all heights. Ultimately, the consultation seeks to strengthen the fire safety order, enhance compliance and also improve fire safety in all regulated buildings across England. 
Interestingly here, Mark, the proposals focus on a number of areas, including providing residents with greater assurance of fire safety improvements in buildings, driving effective and sustainable operational outcomes for firefighters themselves, and also enabling the better identification of responsible persons, such as building owners and managers alike. The government further to this is seeking the views of individuals from key groups, including those that have been most affected by fire, the residents of high-rise and multi-occupancy buildings, building owners themselves and managers as well, and the fire and rescue services, of course. Responses to the consultation are invited from groups and or individuals impacted or representing the interests of those affected by the regulatory reform, Fire Safety Order 2005, as we've mentioned, and also related matters. The consultation is actually live now, Mark, and will be open for a period of 12 weeks, closing on Monday the 12th of October. In addition to the consultation, the Fire Safety Bill itself is also currently making its way through Parliament. This bill will deliver on the inquiry's phase one recommendations by empowering fire and rescue services to take enforcement action and hold building owners to account if they're not compliant with the law. You know, as I said, really, really interesting time right now. But I, but I know if we shift gears a moment, you've actually completely away from what we just talked about. Another important story um, that came out in the last week, and actually I covered this a little bit on our sister podcast, the Health and Safety Matters podcast, which you guys can all check out by typing Health and Safety Matters into the usual ways that you find this, whether it be iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, etc. So Brian, why don't you tell us about another consultation that's going on right now? It's an important one, Mark. It's anyone who assaults or attacks emergency workers could now face a longer jail term as a further consultation on doubling the maximum penalty for the offence from 12 months to two years behind bars is being launched by the Conservative government. Back in 2018, the government changed the law with the Assaults on Emergency Workers Offences Act, such as anyone found guilty of assaulting a firefighter, a police officer, a prison officer or a paramedic faced a maximum of 12 months behind bars. For their part, judges must also consider tougher sentences for more serious offences, such as grievous bodily harm, if the victim was an emergency worker. The Act actually modified the offence of common assault or battery where it's committed against emergency workers acting in the course of their duties. This Act actually doubled the maximum penalty for common assaults from the initial penalty of just six months. In point of fact here, Mark, the Assaults and Emergency Workers Offences Act also created a statutory aggravating factor. This means that when a person is convicted of a range of offences, including assault occasioning actual bodily harm and assault occasioning GBH and manslaughter even, the judge must consider the fact that the offence was committed against an emergency worker as an aggravating factor, as I said, meriting an increase in the sentence within the maximum allowed for the particular offence in question. The government is actually now seeking views from stakeholders, including representative bodies from the emergency services and the judiciary as well, on whether the maximum penalty should be doubled to two years behind bars. This move actually delivers, Mark, on a bold Conservative Party manifesto commitment to consult on tougher sentences, with ministers determined to recognise the debt of gratitude the public feels towards emergency workers for the courage, commitment and dedication they've all shown every day in carrying out their duties, including, of course, during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Home Secretary Priti Patel has actually had something to say on this matter, and she stated, and I quote, Our firefighters, police officers and other emergency workers go above and beyond the call of duty every single day, running towards danger to protect us all. They are our frontline heroes who put their lives on the line to keep us safe, yet some despicable individuals still think it's acceptable to attack, cough over or spit at these courageous public servants. This consultation sends a clear and simple message to the vile thugs who assault our emergency workers. They will be subject to the full force of the law. The government's consultation will run for four weeks and depending on the response, legislation could then be brought forward which would see the maximum sentence for assaulting an emergency worker doubled, as I said, for the second time in two years. 
In 2019, over 11,000 people were prosecuted for assaulting an emergency worker, with a quarter of those found guilty receiving a suspended sentence or immediate custody. It's very pleasing to see the government actually taking action on this matter, Mark. I mean, Brian, you've ended on a pretty shocking statistic. Over 11,000 instances of emergency services worker being assaulted. That's horrendous. I mean, I'm not sure I can do any more justice to the story than what the Home Secretary has said, other than describing people that do this kind of thing as thugs, which is pretty much spot on the lingo I would use, to be quite frank. Under no circumstances should any member of the emergency services be put in any harm's way or assaulted. I know that's obviously easy to say in, in the sense when you look at the police where, you know, of course, if they're trying to catch a, or apprehend someone, they, they may have to defend themselves. Um, I'm not making any excuses for anyone lashing out to the police at all. But when you look at the other side of that, the firefighters, which is what we'll focus on right now, you know, that is our sector. And in no circumstances should anyone to emergency services, such as a firefighter, be subjected to any verbal or physical abuse. And I completely support the government in terms of strengthening these sentencing guidelines. I know, as you said, they'd already been doubled in their length of the maximum or minimum custodial sentence and punishment beforehand. But it should continue to be strengthened because while there's 11,000 instances, we should do as much as we can do as a preventative measure to protect the people that do a wonderful job for us. And I think now more than ever, emergency service workers are held in the highest possible regard in, in the wake of COVID-19. So you wouldn't call this a good news story because it's a very sad and frustrating topic, but it's good to see this government is still trying to be tough on crime on this, on this sector. So Brian, now it's time to introduce our first guest for the week. Who have you got for us this week? Our first guest on episode 8 of the Fire Safety Matters podcast is Graham Ferris, a former technician and technical instructor for communications equipment with various government departments, both here at home and overseas. Graham joined IFIDA in 2008 as the organisation's general manager. He produces and runs fire training courses on topics including fire extinguishers, dry risers, fire hose reels and train the trainer. I chat with Graham about the overriding need for competency in fire safety work and also the key challenges for the fire sector in the years ahead. on the podcast this week and for the benefit of the readers of fire safety matters can you explain what the independent fire engineering and distributors association is all about and what it actually does uh, good morning brian thank you for inviting me yes i can the independent fire engineering and distributors association quite a mouthful so we call ourselves ifida we're a trade association for fire protection companies given our history uh, we predominantly are on the extinguisher side and that's because we grew from training courses in the extinguisher industry around about the late 80s. The then trainer put together a trade association to support all those people who had done the full extinguisher training course. And we've grown from there. That was 1989. Of course, the years go on and our members now deliver things like fire alarms and risers and everything to do with fire safety. So our remit has expanded and we now provide and support members on the fire alarm side, the riser side, as well as extinguishers, training signs, etc. The subject of competency in relation to fire safety work has cropped up on a regular basis during our Fire Safety Matters podcast to date. What's your take on this issue, Graham? 
My take, uh, I'm afraid, I think there needs to be a robust method of checking competency down to technician level. And I really don't think it exists at the moment. How can it be right if we consider the extinguisher side where a technician who delivers every aspect of the standards from basic servicing all the way through to extended service, recharge, can advise the customer on all aspects of the location and positioning of extinguishers, gets exactly the same badge as somebody who's no better than what I call a van driving box shifter, i.e. they put a new extinguisher in, they pull old ones out, and they're just swapping all the time. So how is the customer supposed to know the level of competency they are getting when they sign up with a third-party accredited company. It just it just can't be right in my eyes. As a trade association, I feed it works in close harmony with BAFE. What exactly does that look like in practice? Uh, we have a good relationship with BAFE. We are represented at both committee level by our present chairman, and one of our directors is a director at BAFE. So things that happen at BAFE and the TIE feeder we can talk about all the time. With Dame Judith Hackett's independent review of building regulations and fire safety very much in mind, Graham, yeah. what do you believe to be the key challenges for the fire sector in the years ahead? I think we really do need to raise and prove competency properly instead of just going through a tick box process. And that applies to whether you're talking about fire risk assessors, fire extinguisher technicians, alarm technicians, how, for example, can we guarantee that if somebody puts in for a fire alarm contract, that isn't going to be subcontracted and subcontracted to somebody who isn't then BAFE or third party accredited? One topic that's always worth bringing to the fore is the huge importance of fire extinguisher maintenance. What are the key points to note here, do you think? Don't get me going here, Brian. I, I think the industry is on a race to the bottom. Uh, it, it appears to me that more and more companies seem to want to do the job as cheaply and quickly as possible. Again, I've already touched on the point, we're not delivering, as a whole, we're not delivering the full range of services. Some companies are going in and practically beguiling the customer into believing that at five years, the extinguisher has reached its shelf life and it has to be pulled out, when all it may need is a simple, if it's a water extinguisher, it just needs a quick recharge. But they're not doing that. Um, and what really gets my goat is more and more companies do this because it's cheaper and quicker or so they think. But the manufacturers who, in my mind, quite rightly, jump onto the situation and then they bring out models which cut down on the maintenance or in one case, you don't need to maintain it is the claim. Well, then, of course, the industry jumps up and down squealing, oh, no, no, how can this be? Our livelihood's being killed, when in reality, they are killing their own livelihood by their working practices. Something that needs to be addressed, and I, I don't know how you address it. And lastly, Graham, what does the immediate future hold for iFeeder as an organisation? Well, like many businesses across the land, it's to, I would imagine, to get back on track after this COVID fandango, or whatever you want to call it, I mean, again, like businesses across the land, we've lost a lot of income. It's going to take time to build up again. And once we are up and running, then we can sort of focus on the long-term future. And touching on points that we've already mentioned, I, I really do want to look at some way of properly raising competency across the board. That's my favourite topic at the moment, guaranteeing competency to the end user.
and the Fire Industry Association has announced the launch of its new Level 3 qualification focused on BS 58396. That's the FIA AO Fundamentals of Fire Detection and Alarm Systems in Domestic Premises. The new off-call recognised qualification has been carefully designed to deliver an excellent introduction to a key part of the fire detection and alarm sector. British Standard BS 58396 2019 actually provide detailed recommendations for fire detection and fire alarm systems in all domestic premises, both large and small. It addresses both new build and existing properties. The British standard includes a large amount of detail on all aspects relating to the design, installation, commissioning and maintenance of these systems. The new update came into effect in April last year, in fact, and is intended for use by architects and other building professionals, enforcing authorities, installers and others responsible for implementing fire precautions in domestic premises. The new BS 58396 course from the FIA is a one-day unit which gives delegates a strong grounding in the requirements of the British standard, which is essential for anyone working on fire detection and alarms in domestic premises. To take the new Level 3 qualification, delegates must have taken and passed both Unit 1 and 2 of the FIA. FIA's BS 58391, Fundamentals of Fire Detection and Alarm Systems in Non-Domestic Premises. It's widely accepted that a key way in which to demonstrate competency in fire detection and alarm systems is to be qualified to Level 3. As a result of this, the FI awarding organisation's Fundamentals Qualification has been developed to Level 3 and registered on the Regulated Qualifications Framework, which is equivalent, in fact, to a Level 4 on the European Qualifications Framework. Readers of Fire Safety Matters should note that the first courses take place on Wednesday the 5th of August and Wednesday the 12th of August. Further details on this mark can be found on the FIA's website at www.fia.uk.com. Well, it's interesting, Brian, because readers of Fire Safety Matters will know that we, we've had regular columns from the CEO of the FIA, Ian Moore, talking about the area of where the FIA are trying to expand. And it is these kind of qualifications. Competency is something we've talked on many editions of the Fire Safety Matters podcast. It is something that's a major, major focus for the sector. And the FIA is certainly leading the way with their new qualifications. This is certainly a very, very welcome addition to what they offer. And as you said, uh, you can absolutely take part on the 5th of August and the 12th of August. The first course is run on those dates. And you can do so through the FIA's website. But actually, we're about to tell you about something new, another way to get training and, and another thing that we're very, very proud of, Brian. So you know, and we can exclusively reveal today on the FSM podcast, that Fire Safety Matters has now actually signed a multi-year agreement with the Fire Industry Association. Absolutely delighted to have struck a deal with the FIA. This will be really, really useful for all of you listening. There's going to be a number of new things that are coming on the back of this. Fire Safety Matters and the FIA are going to launch a new awards scheme, which is aimed at the fire and security sectors. It's going to be called the Fire and Security Matters Awards, much like the name of our former publication until we brought you on board, Brian, and we split the magazine in two, (laughs) you know, so we've got Fire Safety Matters and Security Matters publications now. And they're going to be the main publications of this new awards, which is the Fire and Security Matters Awards. Entries will open next year. And the award ceremony will be in March 2022 at the Rico Arena in Coventry. We're really, really excited to be partnering with the FIA and a number of other key associations on this. But our principal partner there is the FIA. Now, the FIA and Fire Safety Matters have one thing, in my opinion, in common. Not only do we want to celebrate excellence, we want to increase standards across the sector. So one of the things that we're going to do, and of course you're going to be leading the way on this, Brian, is from next year, we're going to partner with the FIA to do an annual publication. 
which will be the FIA's annual guide to fire safety across the UK. It will come out next December, not not 2020, but December 2021. It will come out every year for many years after that. Really excited about that. It's going to give a real in-depth insight into all aspects of the fire sector. It's going to be full of market research, statistics, case studies, really high quality content that you've come accustomed to, I like to hope you've come accustomed to, by reading Fire Safety Matters. And, you know, the FIA will be helping us pull that together. All FIA members are also now going to be able to receive a copy of Fire Safety Matters for free as an additional member benefit. And as you will all see very soon, and this brings me back to the start of the FIA's qualification side, I'm delighted to exclusively announce to you guys today that FSM is in the process of relaunching its websites, but to add something very, very new. You'll all be very familiar that you can now get CPD from reading the magazines, listening to this podcast, or listening to our webinars, or through the Institute of Fire Safety Managers. Well, we're going to take that one step further because career development is important to all of you. We hear that loud and clear. So in the coming weeks, you're going to see a new part of our website before we completely relaunch the website, which will be fire and security careers. That will have CPD on it. It will have career advice. It will have a list of all the latest training courses that you can get involved with, including listing all of the FIA's training courses straight through there. And in addition to that, there will be a new recruitment here with all the latest jobs. So you'll be able to upload your CV to that new website. So if you want recruiters to be able to search your CV, there'll be no cost to that to any of you. It's a chance for you to get your CV out there. We hope none of you are looking for jobs, but we're also well aware that you might be in the coming months. So there is no charge to that service and that will come out in August. So you'll be able to put your CV up in private just for recruiters to see. But we'll also have all the latest jobs in there. And if you'd like to list a job in the fire or security sectors with us, you absolutely can do so. So we're really, really excited about this partnership with the FIA. They're, they're a key partner. You know, we've known them for a long time. I get on great with Ian Moore, the CEO there, and he was, I believe, our first guest by on the first ever edition of this very podcast. So this is a natural extension. And I know Ian and the FIA are equally as excited because this is a good chance for us to keep doing what we're doing in terms of promoting all the key work, whether it be lobbying government or raising standards that the FIA do. But also, it's a chance for us to create some new exciting things and give more information out to you, the listeners, you, the readers. So, yeah, I'm absolutely delighted that we're able to announce this this morning. And it's something that we've been working on for a while and, and thrilled that we can finally share with you. I'm sure, you know, this is going to keep you busy, Brian. So I'm sure you've got some thoughts on it. Yes, I'm delighted about the partnership with the FIA, Mark. I've worked with the organisation for many years now when it comes to key issues like competency and training. And this is really an extension of that work in my eyes. I'm very much looking forward to formulating and heading the judging panel for the awards, for example. The awards are going to be all about recognising and celebrating innovation and excellence in the fire sector. That's what the journal is very much focused on. I'm very proud to be its editor. We want to be a conduit for raising standards across the industry market. It's as simple as that, really. That's going to include editorial campaigns and roundtable discussions, lots of them. The FIA will most certainly be playing a central role in this, Mark. Yeah, it, you know, we, we hope everyone is as pleased as we are. 
We hope that you will find it as useful as we intend it to. We really tried to spend this difficult period that we're all in trying to find new ways to give career development and give a real insight and use our content as something that you find useful. But don't think that we're resting on our laurels here. Brian and I massively believe in hearing feedback from you guys. So we do want to hear any feedback of topics that we can discuss, new things that we can do, how we can improve things. And of course, this podcast is meant to be interactive. And we'll we'll move on to that now because obviously our next guest is a recurring guest and it's Warren Spencer. Warren is the managing director of Blackhurst Bud, and as I always say, he's done more prosecutions than anybody else under the fire safety order. You know, it's not often that we can offer you things for free from a legal perspective but Warren will take your questions in this segment every episode so if you'd like to get questions in future to Warren then all you need to do is use the hashtag FSM podcast on either LinkedIn or Twitter and we will pose the questions for you no problems at all. So I sat down with Warren earlier today and here's what he had to say. Warren, how are you? I'm good, thank you, Mark. All, all, all's good. So I want to talk about the responsible person today, a topic that our listeners are never going to get bored of and always want more information on. So increasingly, more and more fire safety professionals are being considered for prosecution and enforcement under the FSO. So I want to talk to you a bit more about that. So I guess I guess my question for you is that fire safety professionals are not generally considered the responsible person as defined under Article 3 of the Fire Safety Order. Can you just give us a little bit more depth on that, please? Yeah, I think there's a bit of an obsession uh, and, to be honest, an unnecessary obsession with the responsible person because the responsible person is quite simply one of the people or one of the entities that can be responsible under the Fire Safety Order. Uh, Many others can be responsible under the Fire Safety Order and they are equally culpable. So uh, there is no, oh, the, fire, the, the responsible person is, tra- is dealt with more harshly or is more important. It, it simply, the, the distinction doesn't exist between the responsible person and other persons who have control of fire safety within premises. They're all treated the same by the order. Um, but the responsible person is fairly straightforward. It, it's pretty much the employer, where the employer can control the workplace, and that, that's the first and foremost part, uh, and it stops there if there is a, if it is a workplace. But secondly, if it's not, then it's the person with control of the premises. Now, fire safety professionals uh, are very often to have some control uh, they're asked to have some control over premises where they bring their services into the premises. So, for example, a fire risk assessor will compile a risk assessment on the premises. So he's got a contract for the safety of premises. A fire alarm engineer will put a fire alarm system in and it will have control over that fire alarm system if he's being asked to maintain it over a year, uh, or, or for example. So fire safety professionals can bring their expertise to premises and the extent of their involvement leaves them culpable under the fire safety order. So Warren, I just want to touch on that. You talked there about disclaimers, you know, within contractor documents to really make sure it's clear about who the responsible person is as as roles progress. I think that's something our listeners would probably like to hear a bit more about. That's obviously something I'm presuming you'd be very keen to tell people that, you know, make sure that you do have clearly written, defined roles and and disclaimers. Am I right in saying that? Yes, and perhaps um, disclaimers is the wrong word in that, um, you know, you can't disclaim a poor risk assessment. You can't disclaim a poor fire alarm system or an inappropriate fire alarm system for premises. 
But what you can do is make clear your obligations in respect of premises. And, and Article 5 deals with this. And, and as I said, Article 5 has the same um, culpability as Article 3. And Article 5 talks, uh, in Article 5, subsection 3, talks about any other person as well as the responsible person um, having the same duties under the order to the extent that they have control of the premises or so far as requirements relate to matters within their control. And that's expanded upon in, art in Article 5, subsection 4, which talks about where there's a contract or tenancy in respect of the maintenance of premises or the safety of premises, then a person who has control of the premises is, is culpable so far as their obligations extend. And, and that's the important phrase, because when the fire service come into premises and audit them, and find breaches, they're going to say, well, who is responsible for that breach? And if there is a relationship between a landlord and a managing agent, then they're going to want to know, for example, what the, the managing agent's obligations are, as referred to in Article 5.4. And they would usually be contained in the, say, management agreement or the, the tenancy, because premises may be sublet, and that, so there's a tenancy, and the obligations would be outlined in there. And for exactly the same applies to a fire success or a fire alarm engineer. A fire alarm engineer might simply be asked to go and mend a fire alarm system. So that's the extent of his control there. If a fire alarm company is asked to maintain a fire alarm system over a period of a year, then they pretty much have control of that system and, and then would develop culpability under the order if that system is not appropriate for the premises or is not working as it should be in, a, in accordance with British standards, etc. So the, the crucial phrases we're looking at there are, so far as the, the, to the extent that obligations extend, where are those obligations contained in the contract or the tenancy? And, and certainly with fire safety professionals, the contract might be the terms and conditions that, that they send out at the beginning. Hopefully they do send out terms and conditions or retainers saying this is what I am being asked to do and this is the extent of it. Well, obviously, if you guys want to get your questions to Warren, we'd encourage you to do so. You can do so via either LinkedIn or Twitter using a hashtag FSM podcast. So please do keep sending in your questions. Warren, in the meantime, as I always ask you, if people want to get in touch with you between now and the next episode, how can they do so? So Fire Safety Law website, I'm on LinkedIn. You can send messages on LinkedIn and Blackhurst Bud Solicitors, my email at Blackhurst Bud Solicitors, which is freely available or by phone uh, if there's anything urgent. Warren, thanks again and we'll see you next time. Okay, thank you, Mark. guest on this edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast is Ray Puttock, Marketing Manager at EMS, the specialist in wireless and hybrid fire detection technology, which celebrated its 50th anniversary back in 2017. Ray previously held roles at ADT Fire and Security and also at Secom PLC. Earlier this week, Mark spoke with Ray about the benefits to be realised from the installation and use of wireless fire detection systems. <music> Ray, how are you? Not too bad. Nice to hear from you. Yeah, great to hear from you as always, my friend. So I want to get straight into EMS because you've got a lot going on at the moment. But before we get started in talking about wireless detection systems, can you tell us 
what EMS has had in terms of a new product range come out in the last year or so? Yeah, I mean, some of the really interesting uh, things we've got are the wireless door controller, for example. Uh, what we've done is we've taken some uh, industry standard mechanics. We've put a wireless module in. So now we've got a, a, a BS7273 Part 4 door controller. Not that expensive, can be installed in about five minutes uh, and integrates totally into uh, the EMS fire cell wireless system. Now, the interesting part with this as well is that we also do uh, another product uh, which has been introduced uh, fairly recently, which is called a wireless zone monitor. And what that allows you to do is to actually put wireless onto any system. So depending uh, on it's an addressable, a conventional, whether it's manufactured by company A, B or C, you can put one of these devices on and then you can run up to 30 wireless devices. And in this uh, particular instance, that can be 30 wireless door controllers. So I want to talk about wireless technology for a minute. What are the benefits mm -hmm. of wireless detection systems? Well, I think um, what we've seen over recent years, uh, in the early days, it was all about cable um, and I think if we look at heritage which is where EMS started all those many years ago very niche but recently uh, and probably because of a couple of instances have happened uh, a lot of contractors and end users have actually seen the benefits of fast installation so particularly when we look at blocks of flats uh, trying to meet standards in terms of, of what's happened uh, they can have a system installed literally in days rather than weeks the other benefit, of course, is the lack of, um, of interruption to people. So if we look at a business, we're not closing down offices, we're not closing down areas. And if we're looking at, at flats, you know, we mentioned uh, uh, tall buildings there. If we're going into people's homes, literally 10 minutes to install a detector on the ceiling, 10 minutes to, to install a sounder, and then you're out of the building. So very, very good from that point of view. And I suppose the other big benefit is the reduced health and safety aspect. If you're working at height and you're putting a detector up, it's literally, as I mentioned earlier, 10 minutes, two screws. So gone are the days of having to uh, put up lots of barriers, closing areas down, and actually the, the risks associated working at height. So lots of benefits that people have now seen over and above the technology. Yes, yeah, certainly from articles you've written for me in the past in, in FSM, Without doubt, that that element of non-intrusive is very, very key when you talk about heritage premises where you can't do any damage to historic sites. But I would just want to touch on that a, a bit more. Obviously, heritage is one area where wireless systems have been installed by EMS. But have you got any other examples of big case studies? Of course, our readers could be fire safety managers or installers or risk assessors, consultants across such a wide spectrum of premises, be it retail, tall buildings, manufacturing, heritage, you name it, they cover it. Have you got a couple of interesting case studies for us? Yeah, I mean, if I can mention uh, one that comes to mind, um, uh, and I won't... Uh... Uh, mentioned the building in particular because it is a government building and it's quite sensitive. But we worked with a, with a, another major fire alarm uh, manufacturer to put wireless into a building in London. Uh, we're talking about many thousands of wireless devices. And there's a number of reasons they went down that route. One is because it is an old building. But secondly, and most important, being government building, you, you know what, you can't, you can't stop 
government departments working. So that was probably one of the key parameters in terms of why they went wireless. How can we put a system in without disrupting any of the business that goes on? Um, and as I say, it's a very key governmental building and um, it went straightforward. Any, any worries about the technology uh, soon evaporated in terms of, yeah, great, it's going to be installed okay, but is it going to be as good? All of that um, has now been proven and the end user, the, the people on site are more than happy with the, de- with the devices um, and the part that we work with have been very happy with the way that the uh, installation went. So all, all in all, uh, a really good example of how wireless can help business. Now, I'm obviously very familiar with your products. I've been down to your manufacturing facility. We've known each other a number of years and, I, and I've seen the technology, but all of our listeners and readers may not necessarily be as familiar, be they be installers or they be, you know, someone that's responsible for fire safety on site. I guess if I if I wasn't familiar with EMS, the question I would probably have for you, Ray, is can I integrate EMS's systems with my existing panels, such as Apollo, Kentec, or whoever? Do you work with um, the other major manufacturers of panel systems? Are you compatible? Uh, yes. Um, if I can sort of give you a sort of brief overview of, of the product and how it works. So we, we developed what's what's called our, our, our fire cell system in, uh, in 2010. That came about because of changing standards, Part 25, which was a European... A piece of legislation that actually raised the bar with wireless and what that did it, it moved a lot of, of wireless that was not really up to scratch out of the industry and it made sure that the signal strengths communications etc were as good or better than cable and, that, and that's the statement from the standard so we've had this platform available since 2010 uh, using Apollo detectors and a Kentec panel. And recently uh, we've moved to the Tactis panel uh, very successfully. Uh, and we work with both those partners on, on a regular basis. What we've done over a number of years is then to come up with different ways of integrating onto different systems. So, for instance, we have a, a Zyton version using Zyton heads and a Zyton panel. We can gain customers if they decided to use a um, an XP95 panel uh, from somebody like CTEC or Advanced. Uh, we will work with them to make sure that that panel will be will work with with our products. So the infrastructure basically hangs onto the loop outputs of a control panel. So whilst the Kentec panel has the specific wireless um, software embedded into it, which will give you information on things like battery strengths um, and wireless signals, it will still work with a number of other panels but it will give you analog values. So what that really means is fully compliant, but actually without the embedded wireless software. So we would always suggest customers work with a Kentech panel because that's the one that we've designed it around. Another aspect is if you've got a panel from any other manufacturer and you want to add some devices on very quickly, we do, as I mentioned this earlier, a wireless zone monitor. And what that will do, it'll allow you to put 30 wireless devices per zone monitor onto any system. So you would integrate that with uh, an interface from the manufacturer. You would then put the zone monitor connected into that interface and then run 30 wireless devices. And then they can be anything from a detector, a call point and a sounder or a part 23 VAD. Now, a couple of advantages there is from a uh, perspective of a customer who perhaps has 
uh, a, a, a system that's quite populated. They have another area where they perhaps need uh, a 10 or 12 sounders, which uh, might cause a problem because there might not be enough output uh, power on the loop. By putting the wireless uh, zone monitor in, you can run these devices. They're all battery. They take no power from the loop and no addresses. So apart from the two addresses for the zone monitor, those other devices up to 30 uh, are totally integrated into that one address. Okay, and it will go back to the panel as a zone. So a great way to add devices quickly without the, the, the hassle of perhaps a larger panel, uh, additional loop cards, uh, and all the costs that goes along with that. So for the nearly 10 years that I've known you, Ray, I don't think you've ever really stood still. You're always working on something. Um, <laughs> so what's next for EMS? What have you got next in the product pipeline? Can you tell us or do you have to shoot me? No, I can tell you um, um, uh, briefly. We have a new system coming out. It's a, a smaller system designed for uh, small to medium uh, sites. So when we think about places like uh, retail, perhaps doctor surgeries, clinics, that type of thing. It will run up to 32 wireless devices. So it's, uh, it's just 32, it's non-networkable. Uh, so it's a standalone system. Each of those devices though, for instance, could be a detector with smoke and heat, a 32 tone sounder built in, a part 23 visual alarm device built into it. So you would have all those elements in one device, one address. So 32 devices, you can see actually, you can still build quite a considerably sized uh, system. One of the other innovations that we've built into this, and by the way, all these devices are EMS devices. So it's an EMS device on EMS protocol. But we could also do uh, an optional communications card, which clips inside the panel, and we'll be offering what we call smart services. So the ability to connect into the panel, and remotely carry out a number of tasks. And that's whether that's bringing down data, uh, changing parameters on the system. All of that is going to be released um, latter part of this year. So we should see that in the marketplace September or October. Well, finishing off, Ray, if anyone wants to find out more information about EMS or wants to get in touch, what's the best way that they should do so? Certainly, uh, we've got the website, which is um, emsgroup.co.uk, or certainly uh, contact me directly at rayputtick at carrier.com. Uh, and as an aside, uh, you probably noticed Carrier. One of the things that's changed uh, with EMS is that we were, are now part of a global organisation. So we are now looking at taking wireless not just to the UK and to Europe, but actually we've got partners within the business as far across as Australia, New Zealand, the Far East. Uh, we're talking to countries like uh, South America now. So wireless has really sort of come of age. So uh, please, any questions, it doesn't matter how daft they will sound, happy to, uh, to speak to anyone. And of course, Ray will be a guest editorial. He'll be writing an article for us in the September issue of Fire Safety Matters. Ray will be doing a great article on wireless technology, and that's all to do with smart buildings. So keep an eye out for the September issue of Fire Safety Matters, where Ray will be part of that. Ray, as always, great to see you, my friend, and take care. Well, looking forward to uh, seeing you soon. And um, obviously, we've got the event coming up next year at the NEC. So uh, look forward to seeing yourself, colleagues and uh, customers and uh, people alike. So uh, thank you.
brings us to the end of this latest edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast. Many thanks indeed to Graham Ferris of iFeeder, Warren Spencer from Blackhurst Bud Solicitors, and also Ray Puttock at EMS for their thought-provoking contributions. You can read more on the issues raised here and others by visiting the Fire Safety Matters website at www.fsmatters.com. We do hope you've enjoyed the content and found it useful. On that note, please do contact us if there are any particular themes or issues you would like us to explore on upcoming broadcasts. You can do so on Twitter by using the hashtag FSMpodcast. Do make sure you follow us on Twitter at FSMatters underscore MAG. As a reminder, the Fire Safety Matters podcast is live to view every fortnight on Wednesdays. Please do like and share the content and spread the word among your industry colleagues. You can listen to the Fire Safety Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. All you need to do is access your chosen platform and enter the term Fire Safety Matters into the search box. We'll see you next time. (music) 